Welcome everybody to episode 53 of the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. I'd like to sincerely thank all of the interviewees, listeners and the soccer public of the Illawarra, Australia, Barcelona and around the world who download this podcast. Please note that this interview was conducted with mobile phones. So there are times when the audio drops in and out. I apologise for this audio issue. Bob Young is our interviewee in episode 53. Born in Scotland, Bob came out to Australia with his family in 1961 and his Australian football journey began when he joined the Berkeley Hostel under 14 and the Berkeley High School under 15 football teams. From here, he kept playing the game firstly with Oak Flats in the senior men's competition and then with the team named the CRM Rangers, who were a football team within an intra-works competition for the company Lysart. It was here at Lysart, which was a steel processing company, where Bob began his four decades long relationship with the Lysart Club, which was formed by the company and then joined the Illawarra District Soccer Association's second division in the mid-1960s. Bob was a founding committee member and he was then part of a club for the next 40-odd years. Mixed amongst his own wonderful journey, this interview is a brief history of Lysart. And it was an honour and pleasure to listen to someone who intimately spent the next four decades riding the highs and lows of a local football club. Lysart's core philosophy is family, along with football, and Bob's interview demonstrates why this was the case. Some of the anecdotes given by Bob are heartfelt, and for me it was emotional at times, especially re-listening to the interview while editing. It must be pointed out that this two-hour interview was all off the cuff by Bob, and although there was more I could have asked him about, and more he could have shared, the information and memories he opens up about are fantastic, and for that, I am truly indebted to him. My sincere thanks go out to Bob for giving up his time for this interview. It was an absolute pleasure and honour to listen to his memories. Please enjoy episode 53. Welcome everybody to the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. I'm uh, here in my uh, study in Coromel and on the other end of the line I have a very, very special guest in Bob Young who's in Mount Kira and has taken my call. Bob, welcome and thank you for being on the podcast. Okay, Travis, thank you very much for your interest in uh, in local football. It's, it's overdue because of... Um, the lack of history that that we really have in the Illawarra after such a yeah. very rich tapestry of um, of activity in the in the sport. Yeah, you you you're spot you spot on there. And and for the listener, before we talk, uh, most people who uh, know of your name um, and, and your family's name are involved at Lysart Soccer Club um, for over you know four decades. Um, uh, a bit about yourself and, and your interaction with football growing up. Okay, let's rewind to the beginning. Yeah. When I arrived in Australia, I I was born 
and largely bred in Cote Bridge near Glasgow. Okay. And uh, came to Australia in February of 1961. Football, when I was growing up, was similar to the Catholic religion, of okay. which I was a member. And it was um, played in the street. It was played in, in, in the parks and everywhere else on a daily basis. And I played football almost every day from the age of three Right through to fourteen when I when I left. Although the last couple of years I didn't um, I didn't play anywhere near as much as I had before because I was at an academic school okay. that didn't didn't believe in uh, much sport. I I did some cross country running for the school, but uh, it was all Latin and French and <laughs> academia. So I'm uprooted from there at the age of 14 and arrive in Australia on the 21st of February, 1961, and ensconced on into Berkeley Hostel, where I fell in love with Australia from that moment on because they actually had a soccer field on the premises, which was covered in grass. (laughs) Now, to... To enlighten you on that, uh, all of our soccer was played because of the mainly because of the weather and the maintenance of, of grounds yeah. uh, in Scotland. All our grounds for particularly for um, kids football was red ash, and uh, <laughs> you learned to adjust your tackling uh, to the conditions because you come up with with skin missing from all parts of your body because of this uh, ash pitch. <laughs> so I arrived here and I, um, as I say, the, towards the end of February, just before the soccer season started, and I, I began by playing under-14s for the hostel, Berkeley Hostel. And as you can imagine then, the hostel comprised of many people from – there was – Certainly many people from, from Britain, as well as Italians and Germans and Norwegians and all the rest of them. So we had a fairly good football team because um, all of these countries that the, that, the, that the migrants had come from, football was their, was their main sport. Yeah. So I played under-14s for Berkeley Hostel and I played under-15s for Berkeley High School. Okay. And uh, that was quite an experience, uh, starting at Berkeley High School with a, a broad brogue accent from <laughs> Glasgow, which meant that in the first week I was there, I was involved in three fights because <laughs> the, the other kids reckoned I talked funny. <laughs> so, as I say, it was um, a fairly strict um, learning curve that I had to go on. So anyway, we rolled on from there and we did quite well in the league. We, we, it was, and it was well organised. Uh, we had a bus every Saturday morning for away games. Yep. We, played, we played teams like um, Balgownie Hostel. We, we also played uh, 
uh, Unandera Hearts. And there was a, an interesting story when we did play Unandera Hearts. In my younger day, I was what you would call fairly quick, but I could never get past this fullback. <laughs> In fact, every time I tried to push the ball past him and run, I would end up tumbling <laughs> based on running picks. And that defender ended up being Casey De Bruin, <laughs> who played for Unidera Hearts. So, <laughs> of course, I didn't know Casey from a bar of soap, but I certainly knew his style of football. So we went on, and at the end of that season, something occurred that it's, it's sort of still lives with me because I, I feel it wasn't right. I got the best and fairest for Berkeley Hostel, and I thought I didn't deserve that because a standout player for us at that time was another Scotsman uh, from Glasgow. His name was John McGarver. Okay, yep. Now, John was an excellent player, much better than I was, and he didn't get the award, and that's troubled me ever since. In fact, John, or Ian as he was known at that time, Ian McGarver, I seen him twice score a goal direct from a corner kick in a beautiful left foot, and then I was embarrassed to get the Best and Fairest Award, and that was a thing. It was called Best and Fairest, which I didn't really agree with because John was, or Ian, was an aggressive player. So therefore, he missed out on getting the Best and Fairest award. Also, our goalkeeper, Brian Parkinson, was an excellent goalkeeper and saved us on many occasions from defeat by pulling off a fantastic saves. So anyway... I ended up getting the award, and, and it's it's sort of, it sits there uneasily ever since. So anyway, moving on from the, in that same year, my dad was a bricklayer. Yep. He got the job in Glasgow with Australian Iron and Steel, yep. BHP it was called back then. And, and was that the, sorry to interrupt, Bob, was that the main reason, was it an economic driver that, that why your family immigrated out here? Yes, it was. My mum's sister and her family had, had come to Australia 18 months before. Oh, okay. And they had written glowing reports about Australia. And mum, and mum was ambitious for us to come out here. Yep. But my father refused and said no until one day we had just got television. Around in 1960, I think it was, because I remember the, the Rome Olympics were on and yes. I was off school ill and I watched the Rome Olympics. I watched Cassius Clay win the, uh, win the gold medal for, for the US. And on the news one night was a report about unemployed youth standing around street corners in Glasgow and getting into mischief and all the rest of it. And I think that was where Dad decided that, okay, we'll put the papers in to come to Australia. So it was to advance his family. My dad yeah. was a very serious man. He didn't, he didn't drink, uh, which was unusual. Probably the only dad in our street who didn't have, a, didn't have <laughs> a pint. But when we got out here, he sent 
he worked every hour that God sent. He worked doublers, he worked his rosters and everything else. And by the and by November of the same year, 1961, he had saved up enough money for the deposit on a house. Wow. And we moved to, of all places, Oak Flats. <laughs> now, Oak Flats to me was like, it was like the end of the world, like <laughs> Tasmania. I loved the hostel. I loved the camaraderie of the others. Yeah. All, I was ahead in schoolwork. Whereas in Scotland, I had probably about three hours of homework every night. <laughs> and out here, I was doing my homework before I left the school, which meant I could come home and straight down the soccer field. We moved to Oak Flats, and uh, that was a bit of a culture shock because it was very remote. There was no transport out of Oak Flats except the odd, the odd train and the odd bus. Yeah. But they did have a football team. So I went down to the Oval in 1962 at the age of 15. I started playing with Oak Flats. So 1962, 1963, uh, I played played with Oak Flats. And because we didn't have enough players, I'd play reserve grade and first grade. Wow. I also (laughs) had got a job at the post office in Dapto as what was called the junior postal officer, which dad said was a career. So he allowed me to leave school in second, at the end of second form. Yep. And so I took up this job as a telegram boy, which was what a junior postal officer did. So I would ride a push bike from Oak Flats to Dapto for my job, ride the bike home, play football, usually two games on the weekend, so to say I was fit in those days would be a, a gross understatement. And sorry to, sorry to interrupt, in, in regards to, um, I like to sort of pick up, um, and, and I sometimes forget because I'm, I get so uh, interested and enthused about the interviewee and yourself and your story, but, but with Berkeley, uh, Berkeley Hostel and Oak Flats, uh, what colours did they play in? Oh, well, Berkeley, my mum always said, Oh, Robert, they play in the Pope's colours, <laughs> which was uh, uh, white socks with gold bands and um, a pale green a pale green shirt. Now, the school was also in green. And I, just to add to that, um, I played in the school team with such notables at that time as uh, Salvatore Barnaba, Mario Morelli, Joe Heggie, who ended up being, you know, good footballers in in later years. Yeah. I had, you know, we had a, a good standard of, of play back then in the early 60s. But back to Oak Flats, they played in like a Harlequin, a Harle- with a Harlequin shirt, which was, uh, again, gold and white, um, with white shorts. And uh, I played with the Prince brothers, that was uh, Corey Prince, who was a very good striker, Ben Prince, who was a determined fullback, and Tony Prince, who was an excellent goalkeeper. Larry Matthews was another of um, of those notables who were very skilled. The, the Prince brothers were Dutch. Larry Matthews was a pommy from around the London area. He had played at some level uh, back in England. So we had very a very good team. Also, Hans Fischer, a German a German guy, 
um, was our um, uh, centre half, and he dominated. He dominated the field. So again, it was they were very good, a, a very good stand to play. And of course, I was young; I was only fifteen at the time when I started. So you're 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 playing here. Uh, to put it in context, you're playing. We're talking. You're playing in with men here, and and yes, yeah. The, the, there was nothing in the Illawarra at that time beyond the age of uh, like the 14, 15 year olds. Like there was no no youth grade. Yeah under 17s or under 18s or anything like that. It sort of stopped around about the 15 mark and then you went into senior football. And how did you find um, coming up against men? You spent, you know, uh, time at, I guess, Berkeley High School playing against fellow high school students and then at Berkeley Hostel in in under 14s. Well, Travis, you, you learn to adjust. And as I said before, I was fairly quick. And before they would, before these... Bruisers would come in for a tackle. I'd generally push the ball past them and fleet-footedly get the ball before they could recover. So I adjusted my game so that I didn't get hit or tackled with the elephant tackle too often. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it proved somewhat successful. So, so rolling on from there, like that was 62 and 63, in 64, uh, at the end of 63, I left the post office and I went to join uh, CRM, work at CRM, which was part of Lysart, of course. And I was still playing with Oak Flats and uh, the recreation officer, it was an excellent, excellent setup at, at the Lysart. They had a... For people that um, are outside the area listening, can you give a sort of... Uh a brief rundown of, of what the company Lysarts, what they did, uh, they're in manufacturing and whatnot. Can you give a bit of a rundown so uh, people understand um, uh, what Lysarts and CRM is? Okay. CRM was a steel processing plant, uh, part of Lysart. Lysart are most famous today, of course, but, uh, from Colourbond. Yes. Lysart Colourbond is, is, you know, one of the major building products um, in, the, uh, in that industry. Back then, CRM processed all the steel for Holden, Chrysler, and Ford, as well as galvanised steel for um, for roofing and, and all the rest. So there were a, a, a very large steel processing plant. BHP made the steel, yeah. and Lysart were the processors of that steel to um, a finished product for the building industry. So I started there as a junior labourer at Lysart at the end of 1963. And they also had, they had a terrific philosophy for uh, uh, employees' welfare. During the 50s, they had, they had actually two football fields, okay. one at Seattle and one over at Fig Tree, which was the Lysart Recreation Centre. And this was superb. They had a fully licensed bowling club with two greens for senior workers. They had a fully maintained soccer oval, which was based on the SCG, the dimensions of the oval at, um, at Fig Tree were exactly the same as the Sydney cricket ground. Wow. The, The cricket pitch which was a bone of contention with us later on, <laughs> was actually bull-eye soil. Now, 
bullye soil is that is was exported from Australia <clears throat> to build the cricket wicket at Lords. <laughs> it's also bullye soil that's in the, the cricket wickets at uh, the Sydney Cricket Ground. Yes, and Mysart had bullye soil. In the, it was a world class. It was a world class um, pitch maintained by a curator who was second to none. He learned his his trade from old guys. He consulted regularly with the curator of the Sydney Cricket Ground in order to build the perfect wicket. And this is this was for employees' recreation. <laughs> they also had squash courts. They had, they had four tennis courts. And these were all free to the employees to be able to get over there with their families. They had a, a, a barbecue area set up so that you people could take their families over there, have a barbecue after work, uh, you know, in the summertime. They had um, uh, an organised squash competition. They had volleyball, netball, uh, a putting green. Unbelievable. It was really a wonderful facility, and it, this was all provided for and maintained by the Lysart Company, <laughs> which are now have been absorbed into Blue Snow Steel, and all of that was sold off, which was a very, very sad occurrence, but that's what happens with economic rationalism. Yeah. So anyway, I joined Lysart at the end of 1963, in 1964, they even had a recreation officer. His name was Ellis Bridge, and his job was to look after and organise events for all the various sports like tennis and squash and, and, and football and everything else. So Ellis came to me at uh, CRM and spoke with me and said, I understand you play soccer with a flats, I said yes. He said we want to. I want to organise an in, in trial works competition. Yep. And there was four teams in the competition. CRM was one. There was the Galv Lines over at Spring Hill, the Northern and Southern Warehouse, and I think there might have been no. I think there was only four teams. So we had this after work. We would have this starting at around about four o'clock we would have this interwork soccer competition in the fields of CRM and also the main field over at Fig Tree. And as it turned out, CRM Rangers, where I was the captain, we won the intra-works competition. So at the end of that, we had a, you know, a little celebration whereby we were awarded the trophy, the Stand Back Trophy, it was called, and Ellis then called a meeting of all the captains of the of the teams and said he thinks we should put or enter a team into the district competition in second division. Okay. So everyone was in agreement with that. So we formed uh, a foundation committee uh, in the end of 1964, of which I was a member of. Yep. And... Ellis submitted an application to the IDSA, as it was called at that time, Illawarra District Soccer Association, and we were accepted into second division the following year of 1965. Wow. That was when the Lysart Football Club 
really started was 1965, and we didn't have a strip, so we used <laughs> we used uh, a rugby union strip that had been left over from the 50s when they used to have a rugby union side. <laughs> and I don't think these things had been washed since. <laughs> that were taken off the backs of the players back there in the late 50s. And, and what was the colour of those uh, rugby union shirts? Again, it was green. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, a green with uh, white piping, I think they were. <laughs> uh, that was, uh, oh, no, you know, gold. Sorry, it was, it was green and gold. This green and gold seemed to have followed me all the way through. <laughs> like back at St. St. Patrick's in uh, <clears throat> in Scotland, uh, we were also green and gold. So that seems to be a, a bit of a trend in my in my football career. <laughs> so we started out, and I said to the guys at Oak Flats, "Look, I'm I'm going to be leaving, and uh, we're starting a new team at Lysart." The other guy showed some interest. So the Prince brothers that I'd mentioned before said, well, I think we'll come with you. Hans Fisher, the, the centre-half that I mentioned before, he came with me. Larry Matthews came with me. So this formed the basis of the, of the first Lights Art team. And uh, Oak Flats, uh, where were they playing when you did play with them? Were they in the IDSA second division or, or, or just playing? Yes. Yep. Yeah, they were in the IDSA second division, and we started out playing at Panorama Oval, which is um, which is where they play now. But then we were moved from there down to the Albion Park ground or Albion Park Rail ground near the near the Oaks Hotel. Yes, yes. Uh, that that series of grounds. I think there's about four four fields down there. Yep. Um, that was where we we finished up. Is, is down at down at that down at that area, which wasn't a bad move because the the panorama oval up uh, up in Oak Flats it was hard as a rock in winter time. <laughs> when you, when you tumbled over uh, on that ground, you really knew it. You know, it was a, <laughs> it was a, a very hard ground. Not as hard as the grounds in Scotland, of course, but uh, harder than most around. Whereas the Lysart ground was the best absolute best in the district because it was maintained on a daily basis by the uh, by the staff the recreation staff over at um, over at fig tree so that was where we started off and we had a, a modicum of, of success not not great but we we did fairly well we mostly got into the semis and and that sort of thing and and we sort of rolled along and as time, Went by in 1968. I decided that uh, I wasn't going to be George Best. <laughs> uh, I was I was 21. I I'd been singing with a rock and roll band locally, and I thought, well, I'm not going to be John Lennon. <laughs> I had left school in second year, so I decided I needed more education. So I, I then I, I dropped soccer then because I couldn't train. In that time where you were studying, did you still have involvement on the the committee at Lysart? I did. Yep. 
but on a on a, a rather irregular basis. And, yes. and really, Ellis Bridge said, well, look, Bob, will you stay on the committee, even though you, you're not playing? He said, because we've got no one else from CRM to represent. So I did stay on the committee, but it was... I didn't have a lot of time, but I would attend. I would attend the meetings and and that sort of thing just to make up the quorum. You know, yeah. that w- it was more lip service than anything else, Travis. And then in nineteen in nineteen seventy, when I completed the school certificate, I then went on to do accounting at Tech. During that time, I was promoted to staff at Lysart and met up with a wonderful guy called Bob Newman. Yes. Now, Bob Newman was also going to tech, and he was also studying cost accounting, and we ended up in the same department, in the cost analyst department. Bob was interested in in soccer. He had played with with Russell Vale in his junior days, and we both decided to go and resume. Well, me resume, but Bob starting out playing for Lysart. And before you you keep talking about... Bob Newman and yourself uh, sort of re-entering the, the playing arena there at Lysart. After the uh, rugby union shirts, uh, what colours did uh, the club uh, decide on after they got proper shirts? We we stuck with the green and gold. Yes. But um, we were a, a gold shirt or a, a yellow, yellow shirt yep. with green piping and green shorts and gold socks. Okay. So we... We stuck with the colours because those were the colours that we were registered with the IDSA. Yes. It was a rigmarole <laughs> to get around the danger colours. So <laughs> we, we stuck with those colours and we embarked into the district. And like I say, we we did okay. We would make the semis, get knocked out in the semis. And it wasn't until Bob and I, and we have become firm friends yes. uh, through, through work and, and sport, and uh, you always know a guy, anyone, when you play football with them. You know, <laughs> you know the ilk of the man. You, you know so much about him, the way he handles himself on the field. You, so you know true. someone who, who will cut the corners or, or not pull his weight or anything else. It's a, it, it's a tremendous insight into someone's performance. If you, if you have a look at at your teammates and and you say okay he hasn't got a lot of skill but this man is determined he will he will never he will never say you know never yes. say die sort of thing so anyway bob and i struck up a, a friendship and in probably 70 around about 73 we were we were both playing reserve grade and we had various various coaches at that time but then we decided we would hang up the competition boots and maybe start the embark on the social side bob became president yep i became secretary and we started setting lysarts into a new direction lysart football club because that's what we registered as, ourselves as lfc not L, not Lysart Soccer Club, but Lysart Football Club. And we made two decisions which which proved to be very successful. The, the first decision we made was 
to focus and guide Lysart to be a family club. Okay. Both Bob and I didn't have any kids at this time. And this was mainly, we, we used to work Ellis Bridge, mm-hmm. our recreation officer. Bob would go in soft or I would go in hard first and <laughs> demand things. And then Bob would come in later and ameliorate the situation, you know, take the sting out of it and say, oh, you know, that young he flies off the handle. And <laughs> and this was all, we we had preconceived on this, this tactic and it worked quite well. We got Ellis to put in a state-of-the-art swing park for kids because we had the philosophy that if a player could bring his family along, then he wouldn't cop any strife at home for being at training. Yes. Because the family unit would be there on a Saturday on match day. And also from the point of view that um, of Lysart, we – we our expenses were paid by the Lysart company, but anything extra we need we had to raise the money ourselves. And we we thought, okay, well let's get basically let's get bums on seats, yeah, and sell from the canteen and that sort of thing. Back in those days, you didn't didn't charge at the gate for um, for entry, but we had the barbecue and. Like I say, the Lysart company would supply the gas and the barbecue and that sort of thing, and all we needed was the volunteers to man it, which we organised, and and that's what we were best at, I guess, was the organisational side of things. That was the first decision, a very important decision, and some clubs have followed that, particularly Bulleye. Uh, I must take my hat off to Bulleye. They recognised the fact that the family... The family unit was important, and they would gear their club toward that. So, but we—I would like to say that we were the first to yes. really, really uh, plan for it to be a family affair at at the football. So the second, the second important decision we made, which stood us in good stead, particularly later on, was because we were not a district. We did not have any junior, any any junior football. So, in order to be part of the ISA, you had to have a youth team. So we had to then find young players, you know, 17, 18, 16, 17, 18, and it was difficult because we didn't have juniors. So we made it a point of appointing the right people into the into the role of coaching and procurement of these players. Yes. We got a couple of a couple of real good fellas. Ian Golding was one. Ian Golding was was the coach. A couple of other guys, particularly Les Keenahan, God rest his soul. Les is Les is no longer with us. But they put in a lot of time, a lot of effort, chasing up players and bringing them along to Lysart. They both had boys of that of that same age, around yes. about the 16 and 17 mark. And they used them and said, well, who's good players that you're playing with? And they would go out and 
knock on the door of the parents and say, look, you know, come to Lysa. We've got great coaching. We've got great grounds and everything else. And it proved successful, so much so that right throughout the, the 80s and into the 90s, we, we became quite a force in, in youth grade. Yeah, most definitely. Then, and I'm leaving a lot out here, I guess, Travis. But but when we got into the 90s and we had we had got to Premier League, that was the real purple patch for Lysart. And my good friend Adrian Alston will always say the football play between Lysart and Port Kembla during that period of time was probably the best football ever played in the Illawarra, and I tend to agree with him, that he was the coach of Port Kembla. Yes. They were our arch rivals when we finally <laughs> snared Casey De Bruin, <laughs> that kid. <laughs> they used to send me base over apex back at, back when I was 14. When we... When we got him, Mysart really reached the upper echelon of, of football in the Illawarra. And the the success that we had from that time with players like Mike Hollyfield and Phil Matthias, we, we had a we had a young midfielder who was working in, in the region. His name was Neil Wallace. And he was a direct descendant from William Wallace, <laughs> Braveheart fame. And he showed it on the park. Believe me, he showed it on the park. We always had great goalkeepers, um, the best of which was um, Warwick Young, who, in my opinion, should have played for Australia. Yeah, he was a, a quality keeper. And, and, and there was another gentleman that, uh, when looking in, in researching uh, to talking to you, there was a man by the name of Bobby Dodds in the 1970s that sort of um, I'd seen in an old program that you'd written about that um, he was a goalkeeper and brought the team, the team and the club together in the 1970s. Yes, Bobby Dodds was an excellent keeper. He was, um, he was another English gentleman. And <laughs> Bobby Newman and I were astounded one day when we were playing Dapto, who were also our arch rivals at that time. One of their strikers had a shot and it skimmed over the, the crossbar and the referee pointed to the six-yard box for a goal kick. <laughs> and Bobby and said to the referee, I got a bloody touch on that. <laughs> <laughs> so the referee then awarded a corner kick. <laughs> Bobby Dodds was again an excellent. We'd always been blessed with with good goalkeepers. Another another terrific goalkeeper that we had in the seventies was a Geordie called Lenny Scott. Yes, tell us tell us tell us a bit about it, Lenny. Lenny was a character. He was a real character. There wasn't an ounce of there wasn't an ounce of fat on him. He was as skinny as a rake. He wasn't overly tall. He was maybe five eight, five nine, but he had the heart of a lion. Lenny saved us so many, many times from 
uh, even if we got beat, might get beat by one or two goals instead of a drubbing. <laughs> and it was all down to Lenny Scott. Now, Lenny would never miss training, but he lived at Dapto and he worked at Spring Hill, which is, you know, not far away from from the Lysart ground. He would then come directly from work to, to the ground. So he'd be at the ground before four o'clock but training didn't start till six. So Lenny would sit having a couple of schooners up at the Orb Bowling Club until it was time. <laughs> then he would go out and train with the boys and he would he would put in a remarkable shift, train between six and eight, and then he would go home to Norma and the boys. <laughs> it, it, two lads who, and Norma worked on the canteen. The two lads became our ball boys. And Lenny was our first grade goalkeeper. And then tragedy struck in 1976, whereby Lenny had bought the boys a little yacht because they lived at Kunawara nearby the lake. And he bought them a little yacht and the boys wanted, as boys would, wanted to go on the lake on the Sunday after he bought them this little yacht. It was August, and the westerly winds, as they do in August, blow tremendously fierce. So the boys harped and harped at Lenny, and he finally yielded and said, OK, I'll take you out on the yacht. Now, as I say, Lenny was a Geordie, heart of a lion, took the boys out on the yacht on the Sunday afternoon, and the, the three of them drowned. Mm, horrible. And that was... That was the hardest thing. That was the hardest thing that that I've ever had to encounter. That, you know, Lenny was such a fantastic guy. Norma was wholeheartedly behind him. They had a beautiful marriage. These two wonderful boys, and they all perished on Lake Illawarra due to the westerly winds in August. And on that Monday morning, it was Bob Newman who came to my place here at Mount Kira and broke the news to me. It was horrible. It was so Bobby, sad. Uh, it was just so sad. So anyway, Ellis Bridge, our recreation officer, was also a trophy maker and engraver. And he built a memorial trophy to Lenny Scott and it was generally awarded, as as I said, Lenny had the heart of a lion, and this was what we generally called the Guts Award. It was the probably the most important trophy that we had in the Lysart organisation. And when you look down the list, every every player who whose name was engraved on that from 1976 to when the club last played in 2002, you could say, yes, everyone fitted fitted the category of playing with a big heart, wholehearted football, non-compromising football. And I'm proud to say that the, the last, the very last winner of that trophy was my son, Robbie, who happened also to be a goalkeeper. <laughs> 
and he won the Guts Award for 2002. And I had the trophy here, here at Mount Kira, up until the year before last, when, with Robbie's permission, I presented it to another stalwart of the Lysart Football Club, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Colin Spencer, whose boys played for for Lysart, and Colin was diagnosed with cancer and was not expected to carry on too much longer. And with Robbie's permission, I awarded that trophy to Colin Spencer at a Lysart reunion that we had two years ago. So it now sits at his place at Tunawara, where Lenny Scott lived uh, and Cole still lives. As I said before, we did not have juniors, so we forged a link with the Coonawarra Junior Football Club. In the 90s. In the 90s, yes. And we would then, as, as a senior or umbrella club, we would supply them training balls. We would also have players in particular, another Scotsman by the name of Billy Newbury, who was um, a stalwart of Lysart, who sadly is no longer with us. Billy organised a group of first graders to go out there one every week to take them through uh, a training session. And they devoted their time to do that. And we formed very strong links with the Coonawarra Junior Football Club, which brought us the ilk of Jason and Noel Spencer and, of course, their mum and dad. And as you're probably aware, Noel Spencer went on to great things in in playing, being captain of um, Central Coast Mariners in the A-League. A little funny story there. We had to apply to the ISA at the time to allow him to play first grade because he was only 16 (laughs) and you had to be 17 to play first grade. So we got a special dispensation for uh, Noel to play first grade with the Lysart Club, which he did remarkably well. Oh, most definitely. Going back to the 70s, Bob, um, there there was a a sort of, um, apart from yourself and and Bob Newman um, sort of changing the the core philosophy of the club to to a family club which was crucial in in the ongoing success and and longevity of the club but you also um, it was a bit of luck as well in 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 the mid 1970s your rivals Dapto uh, who were then managed by uh, or coached by George Ramage um, they went in a different direction and and you got an influx of players um, the likes of John Rye, Sid Wesley, um, John Ray, Martin Wigney, Bill Fennick. Talk a bit about that. Okay. That was a watershed period uh, with the Lysart Club. These guys were were all poms. (laughs) (laughs) Billy Fennick and Sid and Joe Ray were Geordies. The same with Lenny Scott. Lenny was still our goalkeeper at that time. George Ramage had introduced a policy at the Dapto Club of 
of focusing on youth and wanted a younger player and basically told the this squad of guys, great players, that there was no place for them. So they had a mini-meeting themselves and they said, well, where will we go? <laughs> and they unanimously voted to come to the Lysart Club and we hated them. We hated them. We that vote. Dapto and us were arch rivals at that time. Where did that uh, rivalry come from, do you think, Bob? It's hard to say that we thought they were uppity. Okay. Because they did a bit of strutting, <laughs> and we didn't like that. And also, there was a, the the Scots-English influence. You know, we had a, a couple of Scotsmen uh, playing at Lysart, and, of course, the Scots traditionally... Uh, don't have a lot of time for the English or the Sassanachs, as we call them. So there was that sort of that's, that sort of rivalry, but it was mainly on the park. Yes, they were great winners. They were a great team, uh, and they were great winners. And they let you know it. <laughs> so this phalanx of players comes along that we hated. <laughs> and I, I said to Bob Newman, I said, we're not signing these bastards. I said, <laughs> I said, we don't like them. Anyway, long short, Bobby said, well, they're good players. We could use them. So he took me around. And ironically, it turned out that these, these this group of players became my best friends. We formed, it was around that time. We're talking mid-70s, aren't we? Mid-70s, yes. They all played with um, with Lenny Scott, the goalkeeper. And then around 77, and now 77, yeah, about 77, it was when Bob and I decided to come off the park and focus solely on administration. But we still wanted to kick a ball, so we started the Lysart Social Soccer Club and entered the team into the business houses or the social league. Playing with these guys was probably the most enjoyable football I've ever played in my life at that at that time. The, with Billy Fennick, who became coach of life. He was youth grade coach initially, and then he became club coach with Lysart. Sid Wesley, who became my best friend. John Rye, Martin Wigney, Joe Ray. These guys were just so good at football and we're all we're all later on we're all in our 30s now like uh in fact i think billy fennick might have been about 38 or 39 at the time they their attitude to the game to give you an example billy fennick had trialed with sunderland while he was before he came out to australia he was an uncompromising defender who for his size he, he was like Roy Keane of Manchester United fame. Totally uncompromising, as was John Rye, the the Southern England fallback who took no prisoners. These were guys of quality, and I thoroughly enjoyed playing with them, as did Bobby Newman. So because we wanted to kick the ball, all these guys came with us. They came off the park playing reserve in first grade because they're getting on in their 30s now. And we formed this this team and it was formidable. It was a formidable team. We had uh, strength from the 
the goal line right up to the front where we had Sid Wesley and Joe Ray um, as strikers. And we had quite a deal of success. And it was a Sunday morning and it was kick-off 10 o'clock. And after a big Saturday night, you would get the players rolling up in various states. <laughs> but once they put the shirt on, all that disappeared. We went out in the park and we, and we played our hearts out. And then we would have a barbecue afterwards. And teams would actually offer to change their, their game from their home ground to our ground because we included them in the barbecue as well. <laughs> Nothing fancy, just like a sausage sizzle and a few beers up at the back of the orb. And we would um, get, off the, get off the park, have our shower, get up there, spark up the barbecue, have a few schooners around and invite the other team to join us. And we would, you know, have a sausage sizzle. And those were some of the best days of my football career that I can ever remember <laughs> because of the people I played with at that time. Back to Lysart Football Club in, in the IDSA. In, in the late 70s, you got out of the, the old second division, which was the third tier, and, and then sort of moved up the ranks. And then by 1981, you, you'd got into Premier League. And, and although there was a lot of hard work, um, it, was a name, it was a coach by the name of Chris Brown that, that took took Lysart to Premier League. Yes, well, Chris was a was another pom. Uh, he was uh, Midlands, uh, I think Yorkshire. A little guy, completely uncompromising in in the way he in the way he tackled. That seemed to be a thread that ran through Lysart all the time. Yeah, if, this never say die attitude. We were never beaten, uh, you know, in our heads. You know, you might be down three nil, but we we had the self belief that we could get beat three one or three two or even get a draw. We never we never said die, and that was a feature of of the club all the way through. It was contagious because you saw the other players, you know, being uncompromising in the way they played. It influenced everyone in the team until the whole team were doing that. So. That was, that was, you know, we didn't have standout star players. There were players floating around the district who were, you know, prolific goal scorers. And, uh, you know, there were many of them. And we really never had these huge standout players until later on in the 90s after um, uh, Casey De Bruyne took us over or became our coach. But we always had this uncompromising style of play that in our heads we were never beaten until the final whistle. Do you think that that sort of mid-70s where, like you said, uh, you and Bob Newman and the rest of the committee sort of sort of focused on the administrative side, you, you got the influx of players from DAPDO with their change in, in policy under, under George Ramage that you then, I guess it solidified the culture of the club and then, like you said, late 70s into the early 80s, you're then getting to the Premier League for the first time. That was sort of, I guess, embedded the culture at the club? Yes, yeah, you're spot on there. That The, the, the threads of this had always been there, you know, that the, the, or the, or the, the roots had always been there. But this 
influx of players from, thanks to George, George Ramage, really enhanced that, that underlying spirit that, that had always been part of the club. And these guys coming along really boosted the club into, into an, another level. And it was from it was from their their input that we did advance to Premier League under Chris Brown. Now Chris wasn't wasn't a popular coach. <laughs> Chris, I don't know. Had a I think he had a sense of humour bypassed somehow. <laughs> that he he concentrated on football and football only, and there were players disgruntled because he would he would. Tell them what he thought. There was there was very little diplomacy with Chris, and uh, I remember players saying, "Look, he's got us into Premier League. Now we'll get someone else." And Bob and I said, "Absolutely not. This man has done the job. He's got us there. He will be our coach the first year in Premier League, which he was." And then Chris had work commitments uh, after that first year. And stood down, and I think then we appointed. I think it might have been Jimmy Ryrie, yep. and Jimmy Jimmy had been a, a player of note. He was a Scotsman, and I, I think we struggled on for one year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had eighty one, and then eighty two, and then went back to the first division in eighty three. Now, one thing I'd like to add here: Lysart have never ever sacked a coach. We've never sacked a coach. And we're proud of that. We've said, okay, we'll stand by our decision. And perhaps there were a couple of occasions where a coach should have been stood down, but we never, we, we never did that. We would never succumb to the temptation of sacking, sacking a coach. We would just soldier on, as it were. We're very proud of, of, of that, particular, that particular fact. But we did we did get relegated. I think we were second bottom or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Wally Miller was our coach around about that time, and Wally was a legendary coach. Did a lot in the area as a as a player and as a coach, and most people would probably know him from Fig Tree. But he he'd done quite a bit in his career. Yeah, with Lukey Robards in uh, at 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 the Fig Tree. Wally did a tremendous job coaching us but was beset by injuries to such a degree that the crucial games would come up and the crucial players would be injured. It was a, it was almost the perfect storm uh, during that period of time. But I remember playing off, uh, I think, against university, and we had to win by three goals in order to uh, avoid relegation, and we won by three goals <laughs> in the very last game of the season. <laughs> Uh, you know those those dramatic events were. There was a whole series of those um, nail-biting finishes oh, yeah. that we had. But yeah, Wally, Wally on paper was not a not a successful coach with Lysart. But what he did with Lysart was tremendous. He, he instilled an extra level of professionalism. But like I say, he had. Uh, he had the perfect storm working against him that with with injuries and everything else, sickness, injuries. It was a horrible season from, from that point of view. 
So after after coming out of uh, the uh, Premier League in '82 and 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 going down to the First Division in '83, it wasn't back until um, 1988 where um, I think you ran second in first grade, but but that year took out um, the First Division Grand Finals in first grade and second grade, and then you were back up in into the Premier League in '89. It must have been a, a great feeling around the club. It was it was a it was a tremendous period because. <laughs> there was animosity with the ISA. Now we came second. Aris technically won won the division. Yes, which is now Wollongong Olympic. Now that was under the old rules. We should have won because at that time we were on the same points, but we had the bigger goal difference. You know, the goals for and against, Yes, we had the better margin. But at that time, the ISA, probably the only organisation in the whole world, had this, you divide the goals against into the goals for, and you come up with, with a quotient. Okay. And Aris had a better quotient than us. We had scored more goals than they did, but our quotient was lower than theirs because they had let less goals in. Uh, okay. So it was it was this crazy system. Anyway, by the way, the following year we we knew we could do nothing about it. They were the rules, bad luck. But the following year we got that changed. We formed a notice of motion and presented it to the AGM of the ISA and it was overwhelmingly voted to change that system to to be the same as every other system in the whole world, which meant goal difference. Had it been goal difference, we would have won the we would have won the league. However, at the end of that period, in 1988, the ISA came to our ground, and said, um, "You won't be accepted into Premier League because you haven't got a fence." Now we had a picket fence based on the Sydney Cricket Ground. Yeah. Exactly the same as the Sydney Creek ground. I said, yeah, we've got a fence. <clears throat> no, we want a fence a metre from the sideline. So you won't be able to get in Premier League because you haven't got what we call an enclosed an enclosed pitch. So off they went. So we did our trick with Ellis Bridge, Bobby Newman and I. The three of us had a meeting and we got the engineering department involved, the engineering department of Blysart, and Ellis said, we'll build a fence. We'll build a fence within our fence. <laughs> now, you've got to remember, this is a cricket ground and with bulleye soil in the middle. So the engineers come up with a scheme whereby we buried six inches below the turf, a pipe, concreted it in to the ground, and then placed a narrower pipe into that pipe. Yeah. And we built a fence all the way around the ground. And it was it was almost like building the pyramids. We had to do this with uh, voluntary labour. We had uh, a couple of welders in our in our group and uh, uh, they welded the, the sections together. We got the, the pipe work donated by the company and it was all measured and cut and everything else and was in the ground before the end of the before the end of the year. Wow. Which was the deadline. You see, you've got to get wind back a little bit. Aris came first, Lysar came second, and Balgauni came third. Yep. 
Now, Balgowney went through the whole season without losing a game, but it was the most boring football you've ever seen in your life. It was nil all draw, one all draw, one nil win. They'd score a goal and park the bus. That was basically what Balgowney did. They came third. I'm presuming here the ISA wanted them into Premier League, which meant they had to knock out one of the other two contenders, which was Aris, Olympic, and Lysart. So he came to us and said, well, you can't can't, uh, get into Premier League because of the fence. We've solved that problem. So he then went to Aris, and they were at Brandon Park, number two, but they didn't have dressing rooms. They had um, like a container where you went into to get change, you know, shipping container. He <laughs> said, well, you won't get into Premier League because your facilities are not up to scratch. Now, I have got to take my hat off to those Greek fellas over at Aris. They worked their ringers off. They got up and running. They built two dressing sheds with full plumbing facilities, showers, everything else, between the end of the season and the end of the year. Wow. They all up and running at Brandon Park number two. The ISA was thwarted from getting Balgauni into Premier League, we thought. So the Spaniards, which are real wanderers, are in Premier League, but their secretary has gone on holidays back to Spain did not put his application in to be included in Premier League until he returned from holidays. It was then deemed by the ISA committee that because this application was lodged late, they would be denied entry into Premier League, which allowed the third place from First Division, which turned out to be Balgani, into Premier League. And I feel, as I did then, that the uh, Spanish compadres down at Warilla Wanderers were shafted. Another interesting anecdote to that, the grand final of that year was played at Berkeley and it was between Lysart and Balgani. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Balgani had a great striker by the name of Richie Peel. Yeah. They also had an excellent defender by the name of Andrew Naylor, who happened to be one of my milk boys because in 1978, I left Lysart and bought my first milk run. That's another tale. (laughs) The referee for that game was David Naylor. Mario Morelli was on the sideline and the referee was, as I said, David Naylor. So Lysart scored a goal. Mario Morelli has his flag across his chest. So David had awarded the goal. We're all back at the centre line. Mario is standing there, as he does, with the flag across the chest. And David goes out to Mario, and Mario said, on the lead-up to that goal, which came from a throw-in, Phil Murray, the midfield winger for Lysart, had his toe over the sideline when he delivered the ball to Billy Newbury, who beat two players and scored the goal. So 
the goal was disallowed. So the final whistle blows and it's one all. An extra time, it's one all. And so we go to penalty shootouts. Lysart commends, one for one, one for one. Richard Peel comes up, one of the best strikers in the district. And Richie sends it six feet over the top of the bar to land in the bowling green behind the goal. And Lysart won the game on a penalty shootout. When we get up to the presentation in the Berkeley Sports and Social Club, which is, as you know, attached to the ground, yes. Andrew Naylor gets man of the match. So there was any number of contenders. Uh, my personal choice would have been Billy Newbery uh, for, for, for that game. Um, but it was Andrew Naylor, and that was the lead-up to... So it was a very eventful time for the Lysart Club. But it must have been a, a, a proud moment for the club um, because I guess since your inception, I looked through the uh, um, ISA records and, and even through uh, um, the beautiful compendium put together by uh, Neville Arrowsmith. And, and that was the first time the club had, had sort of done a double in terms of a grand final on a day. So it must have been great to, to win both grades. And then, although there was a lot of, uh, a lot of work, as you've explained, in the meantime, to get to Premier League, to that 88 year was hard working but successful to, to get back into the top league. We had to overcome many obstacles. But again, I get, I get back to that determination. Yeah. The determination that we had on the park extended to the committee. Bob Newman and I and the rest of the and the rest of the people on the committee were determined people. We had a we had a sense of what was right and wrong, and I believe we carried that through. We we didn't but we didn't and never did take a backward step. We would confront adversity with what I considered um, sensible sensible options. We 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 played by the rules, but sometimes the rules were stacked against us, and we did our best to to change them. And this was one of the this was one of the uh, instances where we did have a problem that was almost insurmountable. N- now, having said that, I I will I will admit that George Naylor did a tremendous thing for Illawarra football with his administration by his, to my mind, his single or his best achievement was raising the standard of play for the players. He made that a, a condition of getting into Premier League that you had to have a surface that was playable and up, up to standard. And he improved by that, by having that rule. Of course, we always had a tremendous uh, playing surface because it was regularly maintained. Yes, but a lot of clubs didn't. They and and when it and when it rained, you were sometimes playing in a quagmire. <laughs> and George, although slightly autocratic, he got he improved that right throughout the district. And I'm the first to admit that uh, George did a great job for Illawarra football. In terms of the the nineties, where you you then back in the the Premier League, and I might not have uh, the coaches in the right order here, 
and obviously there's a lot of other people that we're not naming here and and we apologize for that but you know um we're doing the best that we can here you had in that 90s that deliberate link to Coonawarra that that started bearing fruit you know 92 the youth grade were the league champions and grand final winners 93 the the youth grade were the league champions grand final winners and youth cup winners and then you also had in that time as coaches you had the likes of Dick Evans, Scott Dixon, um, Mike Holyfield at the club, and then ultimately um, Casey De Bruin. So the committee's choices there about coaches were, I guess, critical in in the overall success of the club in the nineties. They they were. We had long and extensive meetings and interviews with uh, people who wanted to coach Fysart. That led to Scott Dixon coming to Lysa, which is another, which was another significant moment because Scott came along as a non-player coach and ended up putting the boots on. But he brought with him a Welshman called Brian Coakley, who had also played first grade with the Wolves uh, in the National League. And they brought another standard of professionalism into the club. So I'd like to think that we as a committee had taken the time, effort and analysis to try and put in place the right people who would be able to enhance and take the club forward. And it certainly was with Scott Dixon and Brian Coakley. And Scott was there for almost two seasons. And then he was offered a a position, I think, up at Armadale, Armadale University. Yeah. And had to move out. But what he did was he suggested Mike Holyfield. Now, Mike had come out here from England to play with the Wolves and had the best left foot I've seen since Ian McGarver way back yonder in 1960. You're spot on there. Wonderful left foot. And he became our coach, our captain coach. And he was another, another influence on the club that that took us forward. Michael had Michael has become a, a tremendously close friend too. But Michael Michael had a very uncompromising attitude towards players. He would tell a player exactly what he was doing wrong, when he did it wrong, and what he should do to to, <laughs> to improve. So he's he was very similar to Chris Brown then? Oh, he was he was very similar to Chris Brown in that respect. In that respect, he was he was probably, uh, if not the best, uh, certainly one of the best players ever to come to Lysart. He did not want to. Uh, he suffered, not suffered fools gladly because there was never never fools playing first grade. But there there were some. Um, what, what would you say? Some shaky temperaments. <laughs> who, who, uh, and you know, a lot of first grade players have got um, egos sometimes that exceed their ability. And when these egos are challenged by someone like Michael Holyfield, then it's <laughs> almost walking up door time. So, Michael was the, probably the most, along with Chris. The most undiplomatic coach that we that we ever had. <laughs> anyway, that that led to us having a, another 
meeting and saying to Michael, we love you, but we don't think you're the man for the coaching job. So Mick said, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) There was a year there where uh, after Mike, um, Dick Evans came in. Yes, we had we had Dick Evans, and he wanted to make football his profession. So he had he had he had done the study. He had coached at state level in Queensland. I think maybe at the junior or youth ranks. He came down and and he had a year with us. In fact, at that time, I was coaching kids at Big Tree. Yes, at Big Club. And when I felt they were becoming a little bit stale, I would arrange for Dick to take a session over at the Lysart ground and for each of the kids to bring along $5 from their parents. And they all went up and gave Richard a $5 bill. And I would, I would just sit in the stand and Dick would take them through a session. And I must admit his, uh, his work was exemplary and, he taught me a lot about coaching kids, and I just wanted them to have a different face in front of them, just to spark them up a little. Yeah. And we had some success. We we made the the state champions on two, maybe three occasions, maybe that we won the the district league, and we went into went into state and went to places like Griffith and up to Northern Sydney and all the rest of it. Another another great period that I enjoyed uh, within football after I came off the park, and my son Robbie, of course, was part of that uh, part of that organisation, part of that that squad that I had. Fabio Cavana, who still comes around and has a bourbon with me. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas Shadat, who I think has got his got a gym in in Wollongong. Lucas was um, was a real speedster, Ashley Stewart Street. You know that um, there are a great group of youngsters, and the reason I stepped back from that was that uh, in about that early '90s period, '92 uh, or three, they changed the rules about uh, in junior football about the closing date, and and it split the team. It oh, split okay. the team because some didn't qualify for the new date, whereas some did, yes. and. There was a surplus. There was one surplus coach at Big Tree, and as I was, as I wasn't part of the Big Tree phalanx as such, uh, I said, "Look, may, it might be best if I just step down and allow the uh, your other coaches because they did have one coach uh, too many." Yes. So I I stood down, and it it split the team. Which which was a great shame, a great pity, because I, I think that that group of lads could have gone on to to better things, and quite a few of them did. Quite a few of them did um, did go on to play in uh, Premier League. Uh, young Frankie Barilla, yes, and and his brother. Uh, I think Frankie uh, played at at Port in Premier League. Uh, he was he was one of my one of my little guys. Frankie was the fly man. He would always try and uh, if I told him to run around the field, he would sort of cut the corners and I'd make him do it again. (laughs) (laughs) His brother Vince, Vincenzo, and a great group of parents. 
I had a group over there between the parents and the players that we were all reading the script from the same page. The parents did not get involved with anything on the park, but they were tremendous organisers of the park, particularly Mark Stewart Street, Ashley's dad. He would arrange for a bus and accommodation and all that sort of thing when we had to, uh, in the Champions of Champions, when we had to go, for example, to Griffith, and he would arrange for the music of uh, Queen and We Are the Champions. <laughs> we played full blast on the bus as we drove into Griffith. <laughs> they were, they were, um, that was a great time in, in my career, which lasted about eight, eight years. I coached, um, I coached kids for eight years whilst being involved with Lysart. Yeah. Again, it was from, from a personal point of view, Saturdays were extremely busy in the young household. Faye, my wife, would take my daughter Christy at nine o'clock to netball, uh, which was usually at Berry Meadow. I would depart with Rob to wherever we were playing, either at Big Tree or maybe an 8.30 game at Kiama. And then we would all get together around about the 12.30 mark back at Lysart. So we were, for the rest of the day, we were together as a family. and. They took over the role of organising the canteen. We we had a we had a tremendous family. Uh, this this family thing. I cannot emphasise enough how important that was. From the time of getting Ellis Bridge to put in that swing park way back yonder, the older kids would look after the younger kids. Yeah. By the mums and dads, mums, dads, and girlfriends coming along. They would welcome them and and they would become helpers in the canteen. Cole Spencer, who I uh, I mentioned before, was expert on the barbecue, and he would he would then take that as his role to run. There was just so many things. Bob Ewan be doing ten different jobs, <laughs> running around, uh, organizing organizing things. The work that went on off the field was tremendous the players appreciated that and i used to remind them all the time that you know that shirt sitting there waiting for you the shirt socks and shorts that didn't happen by accident you know they were freshly pressed washed and pressed ironed and i would enforce on them the reality that that doesn't happen by accident because gina jones had to wash those shirts after you muddied them all up last week (laughs) And Davy Jones, who was the uh, first grade manager, he would lay them all out. I said, this doesn't happen by accident. We were the last team in the Illawarra to pay players in Premier League. I said, I know that the, the, you could get more money playing for other clubs. Yeah. But the money that you are paid comes from all these people who are doing all these jobs manning the gate, running the canteen, running the raffle, in order for you guys to get a few bucks in your pocket. Yeah. I didn't hammer it into them on a, on a weekly basis, but I let them know that the success we're having on the field has got so much to do with what happens off the field. Yeah. And those decisions that are made, you've got to have a strong committee in order to make sure that what happens on the field is fully supported 
that the coaching staff are looked after and fully supported. That teaches you a lot. It's almost like a philosophy of life or a philosophy of business because you've got to run it as as if you were running a business. Although it's all basically, you know, free labor and all the rest of it, you've got to run it and operate it as though it were a business in order to be successful. And Bob, it was great that you then spoke about some of the committee people because, like you said, that's the engine room of a of a community club. I'm fascinated in in terms of initially you were like you said you had a in your life the green and gold and and Lysard's had that sort of yellow and, and and green sort of trimmings or socks. When did it change to sort of the the blue and white that um, I guess people of um, a younger age would more sort of reminisce with Lysart's or a member of Lysart's, the sort of blue shorts and, and, and uh, white shirts. And even in the, I think the late 80s, I can recall a, a sort of uh, a blue shirt as well. But when did when did the colours of the club change roughly? That was in the 80s. Yep. We were, we were due for a new set of shirts and we always discussed them as a, as a committee as to what, what style and everything else. And it was Bob Newman, actually, who... who who came up and said, you know, the the club car the, the works colours of Lysart being an English firm originally of GKN, Gaskell Keenan Nettleford, I think was their original name. Right. The corporate colours are red, white, and blue. And perhaps in keeping with that, because they are benefactors, perhaps we should go toward their colour, their corporate colours. So we thought, well, that makes sense. And so we took a vote and we said, yeah, we should. So we said, okay, well, what's what's the style? And at that time, we thought, we'll base it on the English national strip. Okay. So our first, might have been 89, I think we entered Premier League for the second time with our new strip. I'm pretty sure that was... Around about then. Yeah, and and I'm thinking that the the spur for that might have been the fact that we were getting into Premier League once again. Now I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that that was the that was the uh, the spur that changed us from the green and gold to the red, white, and blue. And after Dick Evans came in after after uh, Mike Holyfield, but then you had the uh, a dynamic appointment in, in Casey De Bruin. And um, can you tell us a bit about how that came about and then what's Casey like to deal with from your perspective as a committee person and him as a coach? Because obviously we know the results and the type of football that was played and the youth development that he then put together. It was phenomenal. How did his appointment come about and, and what is he like as a as a man? That's quite the question you've, you've just posed. <laughs> just posed there. It, it came about Jimmy Ryrie, who had been a previous coach of Lysat and, and player, said, look, Casey De Bruin is available. Every and everyone <laughs> poo-pooed that, uh, uh, that suggestion like Casey De Bruin, like he was a legend in the Illawarra. Uh, like Casey had coached at the at national level. Yeah. He'd coached Brock down at national level. 
He had coached at the AIS. He'd been the director of coaching in New South Wales. And Bob and Ewan and I both said we'd never, ever be able to afford Casey De Bruin because, you know, some of the coaching fees were really getting out of hand in the Illawarra. Yeah. And we had never we had never paid very much uh, to our coaching staff in comparison with the others. And I think it might have been Wally Zankovic. Now, Wally's a character. Lovely guy. Yeah. Hard worker, concreter. Had played for Lysart, extremely fast player. He and I used to con- get into a conflict because he was always offside. <laughs> but I think... Um, Wally said to me, he said, well, you know, Casey, you, you played against him as a kid. I said, yeah, but I've had no dealings with Casey for years and years and years. It was back to Jimmy Ryrie. He said, well, look, what can he say? You can only say no. <laughs> so another one of our stalwarts, Dave Shepard, who did a tremendous job at Lysart of getting the lights upgraded. He was an electrical engineer at Lysart, and he he was again he, he was part of this this committee. I can't emphasise it enough. This strong committee that we had. Yeah. Gene Finch, our treasurer; Bob Newman, our president; Wally Zank, Dave Shepherd, Gina Jones. You know, tremendous group of people. And I'd like to take a little bit of praise here whereby, and, and it was Wally Zank who reminded me of it just last year, I said, I think we should organise our committee like the government organises their government. Yep. And we should give everyone a portfolio. Now, I've designated certain portfolios, and that goes from gear management, the gate, the canteen, the raffle, et cetera, et cetera. I said, now, anyone who becomes minister for this portfolio doesn't actually have to do work at this portfolio, but he's got to organise people to do it. Yes. In other words, if you're on the gate, you don't have to be standing on the gate from youth grade right through to half-time in first grade, but what you've got to do is organise people to do it. So you've got all the mums and dads coming along for youth grade, they could do half a game in reserve grade, for example. Yep. If you've got uh, mums and dads who, whose boys are playing reserve grade, then you can get them along to do youth grade. And that was the way we organised the committee. So we had uh, a high degree of organisation within the committee with great people. And it was like uh, the feeding hawk ministry, I'd say. <laughs> Probably the the most successful ministry in Australian government. And we we had we were lucky enough to be able to have, have that in Lysart. But with that organization that made it even stronger because everyone had a specific job and you didn't have people running here and there to, to do various things. Like I say, Cole Spencer said, put his hand up, said, I'll do the barbecue. Now that meant him organising someone to do the barbecue, but Cole didn't. He did it himself. But he could have organised someone to do it, but that was his portfolio. Yes. Someone on the gate, um, 
And I think Gene Finch, our treasurer, said, oh, I'll take that because it involved money. And Gene, Gene was a terrific treasurer. And prizing money out of her was no easy task, let me tell you. <laughs> and, and so it went. Jimmy Ryrie, Dave Shepherd, and myself. It was actually Jimmy who phoned Casey and said, can we meet with you? So we went out to Kanahooka one Wednesday night, I think it was, and Casey ushered us in and took us down to his bar and bought some Crown Lagers and handed them around. And he says, what do you want to talk about? So everyone looked at me. <laughs> We'd like to explore the possibility of you coaching Lysart. He said, Youngie, you've got to be and joking. <laughs> I said, yeah. And what makes it worse, we can't offer you a lot of money. He said, I've just been offered uh, 20 grand to coach Wollongong United. They just knocked them back. I said, well, you may as well give us another beer and we'll piss off. <laughs> <laughs> so he laughed at that. And Casey's got a tremendous sense of humour, although it's not apparent. A lot of people look at on Casey and say, no, he's too serious, he's dour, he, he, has, he has really got a sharp wit and a good sense of humour. He said, okay, so, so tell me what your proposal is and tell me how much you can pay me and, uh, and we'll, we'll have a look. So I, I got a little bit heartened then. I thought, well, he's not kicking us out the door. Yeah. So anyway, we, we sat with him for about two hours, uh, had another couple of crowns, and we never even thought to bring anything like that with us. You know, this was all down to Casey. So in the end, he says, okay, he says, look, I'll come along and have a look at what, at what your setup is. So he came along and we then expanded on our youth program and what, we, what we're hoping to achieve and the fact that we're not a district and all the, all the rest and, that, and a bit about our history and everything else. He says, oh, yeah, okay. So it came to the following week and he phoned me and he said, uh, I'm going to take this to the next stage. He says, I'm um, just going to have a look at it. He says, uh, I'd like to meet all your committee. So I knew we were on to something then. Yeah. So I organised for all the committee to come in. I told them the way we had organised the committee into portfolios and that sort of thing. And he was suitably, suitably impressed. And long short, he said, I'm going to take the job. And I said, now remember what, remember what the fee is? And he says, yeah, money, don't worry me. He says, never had. And he's right. And, and money, did, money was of no consequence. What, what he told me later was that what impressed him most was our youth grade policy because he had always been a tremendous believer in youth and nurturing youth and bringing them, bringing them forward. And he said, without juniors, what you guys have done is what swayed me to be part of the LISART setup. Wow. Now, let me expand a little on this. His father came along, Hank. Now, Hank unbeknownst to me, had been on the sideline because he was the coach of Unidara Hearts way back in 1961. <laughs> so Hank came along and Hank was a painter and decorator, as was Casey. And Casey had, had been, in fact, I used, to, I used to call him Rembrandt, a Dutch painter. And Hank came along and we became pretty good friends, firm friends with Hank because he would discuss football and 
he would he would have a beer and he would talk with Bob's dad, Tom, Tom Newman, who used to also come along to our game. We we had different levels of social activity at the club, whereby there was the kids in the swing park, the ladies would organize and work at the canteen. There were committee people doing the various various jobs, but there was also a group of older older people, like granddads of the kids. Yeah. And they tended to just coalesce into into one group. And Hank was was part of that and enjoyed the camaraderie with for example, uh, Tom Newman and Bill Matthias's dad, and you know the, this group of older people. And it was lovely to see, you know, the, these these people interacting, you know, with the common goal of football, and of the same of the same age. In the second year, I think it was of Casey's appointment, Hank died, and this is where we we became very, very close with Casey. Casey was devastated because he and, yeah. Bob, he and his father were very close. So myself and Bobby Newman and a couple of others on the committee, we, we took over the arrangements outside of the actual funeral. We took over the arrangements of catering and everything else. And I said to Casey, I said, okay, uh, you know, where is it going to be? And where do you want people to go after it? And he said, well, I'm not quite sure. And I said, well, look, you've got a beautiful home. You've got the pool and everything else. Why don't, why don't we why don't you invite people back there? Now, this is the old Scots way of doing things. Rather than go to a club or a pub or something like that, there's an intimacy to that. Yeah. And so we made all the arrangements for catering and everything else. And he said to Casey, you just... You just concentrate on the arrangements for the burial for Hank, and we'll take care of everything else. And he hugely appreciated that that gesture, and that bound us even closer together. For me, uh, as an outsider listening to to this, Bob, it, it speaks back to the the true core values of of the family club that that back in the seventies when you and Bob Newman were sort of reconfiguring the club to a certain extent, you became what you wanted to become. I'd never, I'd never considered that, uh, Travis, but I, 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 think, I think you're right there. This, is, this was a very strong thread. Well, well it was more a rope, a golden, <laughs> a golden rope that, that ran through where we did take an interest in people's lives. If, if they were having problems, we would certainly, um, we were equipped to be able to, in some way, help, and in this in this case, it was it was obvious what we could do, and we stepped in and we did it. The women organised the the food and and all that sort of thing, and well, we just took over the the whole the whole situation and allowed Casey the space and time to be able to grieve. That bound us even even closer. And a little postscript of that is that three years ago. At our reunion, out at uh, the Cabbage Tree Hotel, which is owned by another former lifeguard player, also called Young, Brad Young, the the son of the famous Craig Young, former lifeguard youth player, 
that's where we held our reunion, organised by Andrew Harrower and Brad and Casey was there. And when I was outside having a smoke, he came out and and he joined me, not for a smoke but for a chat. He said, uh, I had an interview the other day up in Sydney. He said, one of the questions that came up was, what's the highlight of your, your career, your extensive career in coaching? And he says, and I unhesitatingly told them coaching Lysart was the highlight of my career. That's and I was That's beautiful. Knocked over by that. And I thought, well, you know, thank you for telling me that. Because that meant, that was proof positive that what we had done was of significance and of great value. To have someone of the ilk of Casey De Bruin make that statement and Casey's the most honest man I know. He will not tell you something if it's not correct. So we take great pride in that. And I pass that on to Bob Newman. I said, you know, that it's Casey saying that. And you should be proud as as a committee that that someone of his stature in the region and on a national level um, speaks openly, has said something like that. And, and like you said, he, you know him well. And, and when he says something, he means it. So um, it, it's a great... Uh, a great credit to, to the Lysart committee that he looks back on that fondly. And that 95-96 period, like you said, it was such a, a great era for the club um, in many ways. Like you said, not just on the field, but those off-the-field connections. But in, in 96, um, you were atop of the tree. For me, uh, league championships are, are really the highlight. Grand finals, yeah, they're not too bad. They're a one-off occasion. But in 96, you won the league championship in first grade and for... The second year in a row, you were you were club champions in in the district as well. So it must have been a, a huge highlight for yourself and the committee and and the rest of the club to be a, a part of that sort of success. It was it was indeed. You had to pinch yourself about, but with so much talent on the field and 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 Casey attracted so much. Like one of the best players ever to come through Lysart was Phil Matthias. Yeah, and it was it was the presence of Casey being there that brought Phil along. And Phil became, well, <laughs> I'm proud, I'm a proud godfather to one of his boys, Phil Matthias. Bay and I are godparents to to one of one of his twin boys. Oh, wow. And that that is the the sort of thing like Holyfield, Mick Holyfield summed it up to me one day when he says, Hey Bobby, he says Whatever you've got here at Lysa, I'm hooked. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I've had some offers, but I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and he had, Mick had offers from all around the district. He could have doubled the the income that he was making uh, at Lysa. But like he said, he was hooked and uh, he was not going anywhere. And ironically, and I, I think I might have told you in a previous conversation that that his career ended when after he got knocked down by a car in Crown Street in Wollongong. Yeah. And and he had had dinner with Bay and I and my son Robbie and daughter Christy at the pizza place at, at Big Tree. And we and Faye had offered to drive him into town. He said, "No, no, no." He says, "I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch a cab." And he got out of the cab and then got knocked over. Now Warwick Young was our coach at that time. This is after Casey, yep. uh, and Phil, Casey, uh, and and Phil, 
And I just think, why didn't you just accept the offer of Bay dropping you into town? And I, 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 I still think of that even now. And particularly when I see Mick, and I, I see Mick um, every now and again because I play social golf with Balgowney Pub and Mick sometimes is up there on a Sunday afternoon and we have a chat and uh, about the old days. And uh, I still think of that incident of that Saturday night after the first game of the season when Mick got knocked over by a car and ended his career. Yeah. Uh, sad. It, it, it is sad. On to brighter matters, Casey enjoyed his stint there but moved on. And two years in a row on the field, there was two first-grade grand final losses, um, which in Australian football, um, you know, has has a bit of meaning. In 97, though, um, Lysart did one better as a as a first-grade club and won the league again and, and this time uh, did the double and won the grand final and, and a reserve-grade grand final. So it must have been, again, a, a pinch-me-self moment for yourself, for the other committee members and everyone at the club under Phil Matthias. Yeah, and, and true enough, it, it was still... What I consider Casey De Bruyne's grand final. Casey, the first year at Ly- his first year at Lysart, he actually won the the club championship. Yeah, we lost the first three games of that year. We then came up against Unanbera, who had not been beaten and not had had a goal scored against them in the fourth game. Now I think it might have been we lost the first two games. I I, I correct myself there. But I've never seen a team outplay the other side and then come off the park with nothing. <laughs> on on two occasions this had happened. The third third time we're kind of coming up against Unandera, who have not had a goal scored against them. We're top of the top of the comp in the early days, top of the comp. Declan Dowd as their striker, terrific guy, terrific striker, had a bag full of goals. We played. Unandera at Lysart over a big tree, and we beat them 9-0. 9-0 from this team that had not had a goal scored against them. And that was that was what, it, on that game, everything clicked. The way Casey had put it in place, everything clicked. Now, that year, all teams made the, made the semis. We won the club championship. We got to the grand final and got beaten by... Port Kembla, yeah. our arch rivals, coached by Adrian Alston. The following year, we reached the grand final against Port Kembla, got beat by by the team coached by Adrian Alston. Yeah, 95 and, 95 and 96. 95 and 96. Adrian still says that was the best football ever played in the Illawarra, was the football played between Lysart and Port Kembla, and I tend to agree with him on that. Casey is then offered the director's job of coaching New South Wales. So he came to us and he said, look, I'm reluctant to go. He says, but this is an opportunity that I've been looking forward to. So as always, he went with our blessing and he anointed Phil Matthias as captain coach. He said, I know you don't like captain coaching. He says, but he says, that's my recommendation. When you get the best coach in Australia, in my opinion, telling you that, yeah. be a mug not to follow it through. So we did follow it through. We appointed Phil Matthias as captain coach. 
And but what Casey had built really came to vogue in that third season when Phil was on the field as the captain. He was the coach of the side, and the only the only thing that took anything off it it wasn't Port Campbell, it was Cringilla. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and I said to Noddy, I said to Noddy after that, I said. Mate, I wish it was you that we had beat on that day because you you had scarfed us on two seasons prior to that. <laughs> but that was definitely the pinnacle to be able to do that, and it all emanated from from Casey De Bruyne and his philosophy of the game, his treatment of players, the information that he has on football. He has made a study of it. As I say, I've got no reservations in telling anyone I consider him the best coach in Australia. Yeah. And that includes all these guys running around the A-League and everything else. This old-school coaching combined with innovation, modern innovation, is a, is a formula that I would recommend to any, any coach anywhere. And he still coaches even now at Westfield Sports High, uh, where he has, he has done that for the last, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 years. Even when he was coaching us, he still went up there once a week and, and coached the boys up there. And I remember one time I was up there with another, another one of our, uh, our stalwarts and sponsors was a guy called Chris Calderbank Park, who was involved he's now back in England because his son has has signed up with one of the Premier League clubs as a goalkeeper but Big Chris was involved he came from Bolton and he was like if you a scout for Bolton out here and I introduced him to Casey and and we arranged for Chris and a couple of the coaches who came out from Bolton to go up to Westfield Sports High where Casey was coaching and when we were up there that day, there was this young kid. I was about 12, maybe 13. And he said, he said to me, he said, see that kid there, that little blonde kid there? I said, yeah. He said, he'll play for Australia without a doubt. I said, oh. I said, how, how do you know that? He says, oh, just a combination of things, his attitude, the way he handles the ball, the way he follows instructions, his skill level. He says he'll play for Australia. And that turned out to be Aaron Moy. Wow. That he was that he was coaching. That's the same. That's the same school where Harry Kuehl came from. Yeah. Uh, so they they've had a lot of success uh, through that school. It's hard to sort of fit over fifty years of of football into into a couple of hours. But but I I wanted to, and and I know it might be tough. But you know, after after uh, Casey, and then after Phil Warwick, then coached, and then you know after that. Even in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, um, Lysart was still very strong, especially in the youth grade ranks and even reserve grade. Although it might be difficult, and, and I don't want to sort of press you too hard because it must uh, be a bit sad in a way, but what ended up happening there at the end of 2002? Because from an outsider back then, at that time I was a younger guy, but I was sort of perplexed to say, well, what happened to the club? Because you were a, a powerhouse club, always developing youth, um, always was strong in, in first grade. So so what happened, Bob? Well, it, it, it was a series of things. 
Travis. But again, I get back to that strong committee level. That strong committee that we had, Bob Newman said, look, I, I've got other things to be doing. And after all the years of being our president and leader, he stepped down. And I stood in as the role of president. Now, we lost not only Bob, we lost Dave Shepard, we lost uh, Wally Zank, we lost two others. Our committee became weakened. Yeah. All the time, and that was that was the what would you say that was the the death knell of Vysart without us knowing it, without realizing it. We had lost so much strength from our committee that things started not coming unhinged, but not gelling as well as they should do. We didn't have people stepping into the the breach as we had before, so. That happened in 99, 99, I think. Yep. Bill Matthias had to take off because of work commitments. Um, he, he works down the a metropolitan coal mine, so he couldn't devote the time to it. We had Rob Birkin, who was a very good coach and achieved so much with, with such a limited budget. But roll up to 2002, two things happened then. One of our major sponsors was uh, West Zillawarra. Yep. We were actually doing better for the club than the teams within their organisation, like West Zillawarra football team, yep. West Zillawarra soccer. We were, actually, we were actually attending the club and giving back more than they were. And there was a bit of uh, nose, a few noses out of joint because of that. And there was certain people on the committee who had said, you know, why are we sponsoring Lysart? So they sent me a letter and said, uh, we're going to be reducing your sponsorship next year from 15 grand to 10 grand. So that was five grand knocked off our, our bank balance straight away. But the real death knell came shortly after that when Lysart, since 98, Lysart had been putting the the uh, all non-performing assets on their balance sheet up for sale. Okay. Now, the Recreation Centre, as I described earlier, a wonderful, wonderful place, was on the balance sheet as an asset, of course, but was a non-performing asset, in fact, was costing quite a bit of money with the recreation officer and the, the ground crew and everything else. So it went up for sale. The floods came in 98. You may remember Westfield being uh, flooded out, and we ended up with cars from their car park on our oval, actually. <laughs> so we had some favourable, some what would have been favourable uh, uh, ideas of what to do with the with the recreation centre, and the guy in charge of divesting it was the superintendent, was actually with the manager of Lysart, Bob Frizzell. And I had known Bob Frizzell from way back in my days at Lysart when I used to be his cost analyst. So I liaised with him. Bob Newman and I tried to get Illawarra football to buy the place and have it as a 
have it as a district hub, headquarters yeah. for soccer in the Illawarra. And because of lack of vision or lack of whatever, it wasn't taken up. And I still regret that to this day, that wasn't taken up. We stated at that time, we will be paying rent. All we want to do is to play on that ground every second week and still have this as Lysart home. Yeah. But it wasn't taken up. I don't know how far it went within the ISA. We offered to speak to the the committee of the ISA and put forward our vision, but we didn't get anywhere with that and it didn't come to fruition. So it was bought by a group called the Wollongong Recreation Sports Centre, which was made up of a, a group of people that included Hans van der Haar, who owns Illawarra Hardware, wide form, and particularly a man called Wally Boscoscura, who owned a business called Central Fabrication. Really, in essence, coming to the end of 2002, your sponsorship's been reduced from West Illawarra Leagues Club by 33%. You've lost a core group of quality committee people, and now the ground itself is up for sale and bought by another party. Bought by another party who then sent me a letter to say, you will not have a ground next year because they had gone back on their commitment to us. I had extensive discussions with them because Bobby Newman had stepped out at this time, so it was left to me. I had extensive discussions with them and said, okay, we will pay a lease fee and this will be our headquarters. And they had come back to me saying all the right things. We want the Wolves to train here with a view of later on playing here but that won't interfere with you because you're a winter sport, they're a summer sport. You will also get the spillover from Wolves youth grade, anyone, any of the, the players who try for the trial for the Wolves who don't make the grade will be steering them in your direction. So you will have a feeder for your youth side, which we know you hold in uh, great esteem. So they made all the right noises at that time. So I said to Bob Frizzell, the manager of, of Lysart, this looks like being the good deal. Now, that was in 99. And in 2002, I received a letter from Wally Bossescura saying, you will not have a ground next year because we are going to bring the wolves over here full time. We will assist you in trying to find a new ground. Obviously, that would have been a horrible letter to receive. And, and for you and the committee, it must have been uh, devastating to then think, well... There's really no no other option for us as a club because your ground is part of your personality and your sort of heart and soul of a club, isn't it? The, the ground was a partner, a fully operating partner of what we were all about. I did not release that letter to the general committee. I agonised over it, investigated what could be done, yep. looked at looked at options, looked at mergers. I went into early discussions with mergers with. West Illawarra, yep. I went into early discussions with a merger with Wollongong Olympic. They both ceased to become viable, and I then declared there was a, another factor. In 2003, with my milk runs business, I was going to be under more pressure, and I, couldn't, I knew I couldn't devote the time necessary. The presidential position demanded. Mm. I 
reluctantly, I called everyone together. It was the AGM. I said, I will not be standing next year, and I recommend that we cease as a club. I pointed out the West Illawarra thing. I pointed out the fact that we didn't have a ground. I said, we won't be here. So I think we call it a day and and we say we've, we've done great. Yep. However, there was a, a group there who said, no, we don't want to give it up. I said, I, I don't want to give it up either. I said, but I will not be standing as president. You've got to remember that when I step down as president, you'll lose all the organisation that I bring. I said, I will help as much as I can. I said, but you won't have Faye operating the canteen, for example. You won't have my sister helping in the canteen because Marguerite, my sister, was also helping the canteen. You've got to start from behind the eight ball. You've got to find a ground. You won't be able to play here. But they insisted that they would like to like to travel on and they appointed a new president, appointed a new coach, the same treasurer, Gina, Gina Jones, and all the players are saying, yep, 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 I'm staying, I'm staying, I'm staying. And that was in October. And by January of 2003, all the players had signed with other clubs. Robbie, my son, still says to me, he said, I was the last player ever to drive out of the Lysart Gate. He says, I waited till everyone went, then I drove out so that I could say I was the last player ever to drive out of the Lysart Gate. So that was an extremely disappointing time in our proud history. But I get back to the fact of what happens off the field is what it's all about. That strong committee is a must. And if you don't have a strong committee, you will find that you'll flounder because there's so much work to be done off the park to attain success. You've got to have that 100% commitment from each and every one who is on that committee. We had just been shredded because of, uh, you know, and I'm not blaming anyone for that. The people have commitments in their lives that they've got to pursue. And as I say, I, I don't blame any one of them tend to more dwell on the wonderful success that we had because of what we achieved while they were there. They don't grow on trees, those people. They're, they're special people. It takes you a long time to build that up. And it took us probably 10 years to build that committee into the operating unit that they turned out to be. And it was wonderful, but it ran its course. And then with the loss of our ground, there was really no option but to call it a day. And we never started the 2003 season. So my recommendation actually proved to be correct because the people that were left, and I knew they wouldn't be able to replicate what we had achieved in the mid to late 90s. I said, we can have a big party and we can say to the ISA, thanks, but no thanks. We're not entering into the Premier League in the year 2003 so we went out with a whimper rather than a bang which i would have preferred it's sad to hear it and i apologize that i had to ask the question but i thought it wouldn't be fair i guess interview someone like yourself that's that's done so much for for lysart and and for the game itself in the illawarra to sometimes you've got to speak about the 
the sad times as well as the good times and, and great times. But um, like you said, there was so many uh, great moments from when it started in the mid-60s through the 70s, 80s and 90s. And even in this interview now, you, I can just hear it in your voice that the relationships that you still have with people, the bonds that were formed and the many men and women that were involved, you're a credit to the football economy or, or world in the Illawarra. It's just been a pleasure, Bob, uh, listening to just little bits of, of those over 40 years in, in the game. I thank you very much for that. And I do, I do understand your interview with me would not be complete without having an explanation of what the final chapter was. And I, I fully understand that. And as I say, it would not be complete without that. I thank you for uh, the opportunity to discuss the history of, of Lysart. And this has mostly been off the top of my head, I'm sure. And I think uh, people need to be aware that um, even though we had some prior discussions, Bob has uh, gone through this chronology, like you said, off, off the cuff. And your memory's been, like I said, fantastic and, and just some of the anecdotes. So people must be aware that there's no notes, although I can't see... Bob, at the moment, I know that he's talking off the cuff. It just speaks volumes to you as as a person, and I feel uh, indebted that you gave me your time this morning and this afternoon. Thank you very much, Travis. If I can just add one, one more thing. Definitely. I know more about rearing kids, I think, through my time in football because of raising my, my own two children, but also being involved in the coaching of children particularly up to that and partially through that, that horrible area of puberty, you know, that comes to, that comes to all, all kids. The involvement of children in soccer, particularly in soccer, but in other sports, particularly team sports, is what forms a great deal of their character. And this is at a general level. And governments should take note of this in order to turn out better citizens, better individuals who rely on others like you do in the game of football. You rely on another person making that pass or you stopping that that striker, getting to your goal. You rely on each other so much. And if you can take that into your general life, take that philosophy into your general life, you become a better person for it. I remember um, Craig Young telling me, at the wake of his father, Bob Young's funeral, of the trepidation he had of telling his father that he had been uh, selected in the New South Wales Schoolboys Rugby League because his father had said rugby league was a game for meatheads. <laughs> <laughs> and Craig, as big and tough as he is, was so scared of going home to tell his father that he had been, been playing secretly in this game for meatheads. <laughs> so when you look at the the whole thing the family involvement and the the regulation and the camaraderie is so much part of the formation of particularly young men it must apply to young women as well but particularly young men that with the right grounding they turn out to be better adults i thank you very much for your time and sincerely appreciate the knowledge and and facts and, and other anecdotes that you've shared today. You're most welcome, Travis. And I hope some of your listeners find some interest in, in what I've had to say today. 
Oh, most definitely. Once again, I'd like to sincerely thank Bob for the time he spent talking with me on a Monday morning and afternoon. As always, thank you for listening and downloading this podcast. I'm your host, Travis. Goodbye for now.